Welcome to the AGA Podcast, where we bring you small talk on big topics from within the world of gastroenterology. Thanks for being with us. Now let's get started. Hi, everybody, and welcome to Small Talk, Big Topics, the AGA Podcast. I am one of your two hosts, Matthew Whitson, and with me is my colleague, CS. Hey, CS, how are you? Hey, doing well, and you? I'm doing good. I don't know how you're feeling about it in Philadelphia, but... It's a lot it's, of rain. It's right a now. lot of rain. I was gonna say, yeah. It's, it's a lot. Rain. I, I feel like you're missing the San Diego right now. I kind of do. I was like, everyone's like, wait, what? You went from San Diego to Philadelphia? Why? <laughs> <laughs> I know you're you're Not surfing. For the weather. No, your surfing <laughs> skills have completely gone downhill for sure. <laughs> so we have an interesting topic for today that is in conjunction with the Academy of Educators and their social media group which is how to be a better endoscopic trainer. So I'm curious, as a young faculty member, CS, how has this been for you? Has this been an adjustment? It's been really nice, I think. A good natural progression over the past five years of when I have no idea what a scope is. And I was like, how do people decide they go to GI if they don't even know whether they like scoping being such an integral part of a gastroenterologist? You just kind of like, I'm going to go in GI. And then you're like, I'll then start scoping and see if like (laughs) I like this 50% of my RVU thing. But yeah, no, so far so good, which is great. And kind of flipping from as a trainee to someone who doesn't know to more like a fellow and then this fellow tending position where you're as an advanced IBD fellow, I was both as a training trainee, but also as an attending as well. So supervising others and now fully as a faculty. So it's a, it's a good, almost like, I'm sure Justin and Catherine or guests for the show have a a formal word for this progression and learning thing that I described, but uh, but that's how I described it. <laughs> it's it's funny because I do remember, you know, as a fellow, I'm like, when I'm in attending, I'm never going to teach like this. And then all of a sudden you're in attending and you're like, up, just go up. Why won't you go up? And then you just start going, oh, no, I've, I've, I've become my father. I've become my mother. <laughs> Um, and that is true. So it's been a journey into becoming a better educator in endoscopy. And this is like, as you said, it's like one of those things that for trainees is so intimidating. And I think for educators, it's super intimidating to have a trainee in the room with you, be responsible, not for just your actions with the patient, but for the trainees and also not just the patient care, but their education. So it's, so I'm looking forward to learning some techniques and like enhancing my own skill set let alone talking to two people I respect. So we're so excited to have Justin Sewell here with us. He's MD, PhD, MPH, so a lot of accolades, who is also a professor of clinical medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. And his area of specialty besides inflammatory bowel disease is how to perform endoscopic procedures as well as to teach them. And our second guest today is Dr. Catherine Walsh, who is a staff gastroenterologist in the Division of Gastroenterology, Hepatology, and Nutrition at SickKids Hospital, part of the University of Toronto, where she is also cross-appointed scientist at the Wilson Center for Research in Education. And if you're not familiar with her, she has published study on study on study, as of both of them, in medical education, specifically focused on endoscopic training. So I do not think we could ask for two better people to have on today's podcast to talk about this important topic. Absolutely. And I think hearing them and talking to both Catherine and Justin really makes me 
it was so interesting to hear of the cognitive aspects of almost like a meta-analysis aspect of endoscopy, which is very procedural. You kind of look and see and you learn the skills and the muscle memory. But hearing them who done their PhDs in procedural training in endoscopy, it was so fascinating to think about this motor skill, I guess. No, absolutely. They're wonderful people, wonderful to talk to and just wonderful educator. So without further ado, let's get started and let's chat with Justin and Catherine. Why don't we start with Catherine? Catherine, do you mind introducing who you are, what you do, and where you're at now? And then we'll get into the first question. Sure. So I'm uh, at the Hospital for Sick Children in Toronto. So I'm a pediatric gastroenterologist and a clinician educational scientist. So I spend the majority of my time looking at kind of educational research and studying how people acquire different clinical skills and how we can assess those in the best manner. And in terms of my clinical practice, in terms of pediatric gastroenterology, I really focus on endoscopy as well as running our celiac clinic at the Hospital for Sick Children, which is in Toronto. Justin, what about you? Uh, good morning. Uh, my name is Justin Sewell. I'm a professor of medicine at UCSF. My clinical work is at San Francisco General Hospital, which is our safety net hospital for the city and county of San Francisco. Clinically, I focus on inflammatory bowel disease. And in terms of the educational space, I study cognitive load theory and how that impacts GI endoscopy teaching and learning. So when we start off this conversation, I'm curious what drew both of you into the field of endoscopic training or kind of educational theory as to how it applies in endoscopic training. Like, Why did you start in this field and um, what excites you about it? So I would say during my medical school, I got interested in education and medical education and became involved in that. And then as I started in pediatric gastroenterology, I really began to see that endoscopy was often not taught as well as it maybe could could be, uh, and that there were many gaps in terms of how we teach endoscopy and how people learn endoscopy. So that really kind of spurred my interest in endoscopy. And during my fellowship, I pursued a master's in education and then a PhD in education. And that really focused on endoscopy in terms of feedback as well as assessment of endoscopic skills. I actually had a somewhat analogous path. I entered my career my faculty career. And, you know, on June 30th, I was a fellow. On July 1st, I was an attending. On July 2nd, I got a couple of new fellows. They're like, here, teach these fellows endoscopy. And I went, huh, I don't think I actually know how to do that. So I started doing the same things my attendings had done with me and saying the same things and saw the same kind of like glazed expression across their face. Um, and so then a year later, I get this email that says, come join the UCSF teaching scholars program. And I was, and I thought, huh, I could really use help teaching. So I learned that there was this thing called education research and learned it was actually really interesting. And that actually also led me to obtain an advanced degree, a PhD in health professions education. And it was during teaching scholars that I learned about cognitive load theory. And it just seemed so so relevant to what I had just experienced as a fellow, like, you know, less than two years before that became, became my focus. And I think it's a really apt lens for thinking about endoscopy teaching and learning. 
So getting to the crux of the theme of the podcast, is there a right way to teach endoscopy or a wrong way? Or it's just like, you just do it. (laughs) I think there's a lot of right ways and probably some wrong ways as well. I think that there are, yeah, I think there's lots of right ways to do it. I think that as long as we are centered on the patient experience the fellow experience and also you know centered on our own as faculty centered on our own uh, being present and knowing what's going on as well that was not very eloquent i'm going to turn it over to Catherine. <laughs> maybe she has a better answer <laughs> no i think there there are many different ways to teach endoscopy and certainly a number of right ways i think one of the huge issues is that probably none of us were taught appropriately. So it's very hard for this us then to turn around and teach endoscopy because I think when we learned, certainly for myself, I just kind of watched what my faculty did and picked up kind of what I thought were good habits here and there. But why I was doing those things, I couldn't tell you at all. So then when I've actually kind of gone back and tried to relearn how to teach endoscopy, it took a lot of effort to actually figure out why am I doing this at a particular time? And how is that helping the trainee? And then how can I actually verbalize that to the trainee so that they can understand it? And I think that's one of the kind of most difficult things about teaching endoscopy is actually trying to break down the skill for yourself as a teacher and being able to explain things to trainees. So maybe this is a good time to bring to ask for trainees learning and for faculty teaching, what are the educational concepts that are at play here? And what are what is it that we need to know? Before we get into how to do, what are the things that make it challenging? What are the learning styles that we need to be aware of? I'll open up broadly, but I would love to also hear a little bit about cognitive load theory just for our audience, but also adult learning styles and kinesthetic learning and how that kind of interplays as well. I think the primary challenge is that we are doing during endoscopy a complex procedure with a long and flexible instrument, which can take on, you know, infinite configurations inside a three-dimensional human body. And especially if we're talking about colonoscopy, the configuration of the colon can vary widely amongst people. And the only feedback that we have is our two-dimensional cross-sectional view and how the scope feels in the hand. And so you know, dialing the the dial up or torquing clockwise may have different outcomes on the screen depending on the configuration of the scope. So there's essentially, you know, infinite permutations of what can happen. And trying to find the words to describe how it should feel, I think is the biggest challenge because so much is based on feel. I think to me, endoscopy Successful endoscopy is based as much on understanding the feel as understanding what you're seeing. And so we're used to describing what we see, but we're not used to describing what we feel. And furthermore, we can't feel when this is a single operator procedure, right? This is not like you're in the operating room and you can both put your hands, you know, on the, on the organ in question, or you can, you can have the same experience. You can't simultaneously have the same experience as the, as the person who's holding the scope and the person who's observing. And so that makes it really challenging. I think that is why it's so difficult to teach and to learn from my perspective. And I think that 
that is where I think cognitive load theory really makes sense. I will explain this very briefly. <laughs> this is not a podcast about cognitive load theory. Um, but, um, but, <laughs> sorry, um, briefly stated, we, we can invite you back for an entire CLT podcast if you want. Briefly stated, cognitive load theory is a cognitive learning theory that focuses on the limits of the human working memory, our sensory memory, like everything we can sense, and our long term memory, like everything we can store in our brain, is theoretically infinite. But what we can focus on at any moment is very, very limited. That's our working memory. And that can become easily overloaded during a complex learning situation. So in the setting of endoscopy training, if you watch your new fellow trying to do something as simple as to intending as navigating the sigmoid, you can watch them quickly become overwhelmed. Um, and that's because their they're working memory is overwhelmed, uh, overloaded. And so cognitive load theory just gives us different ways to think about how they use that working memory capacity. I've heard it described like learning to drive for the first time. Um, and I totally concur. And because I learned to drive like later in life, not when I was 16, I guess, because <laughs> I didn't need to. I lived in Toronto where Catherine is and there's a great transit system um, until I went to med school. And they're like, yeah, remember the first time you're driving, you're like gripping the steering wheel and like, you know, like looking at all the signs. And for the life of me, I couldn't understand how people could use GPS and drive at the same time. There's like just so much. And, you know, now and then things become muscle memory and stuff like that. So I think that might be an analogy of what it's like for a first time. Yeah, absolutely. I think cognitive load, it also applies not only to the trainee, but you as the faculty, right? Because when you're teaching endoscopy, there's so many things that you have to pay attention to. The patient, what's going on in the room, you have distractors like pagers. So as a faculty, it's very hard then to kind of pay attention to anything. And I think that speaks to one thing around endoscopy training and the importance of setting goals ahead of a procedure or ahead of a session, because that allows you as a, a faculty to have a focus point for your feedback and for your observations, because you just can't look at everything and provide feedback on everything. Especially as an early faculty, because as an early faculty, you're still somewhat overwhelmed by the procedure. And by now you've taken on this role as the attending, you know, the, the buck stops here or whatever. And so Absolutely, I agree. I remember very distinctly my first week of being an attending in a horrible diverticular bleed in an ICU and instinctively looking over my right shoulder to see what if the attending wanted to take the scope. <laughs> while, and in my head, I was like, oh no, it's you. And like calmly looked back to the screen. So actually, CS, as a, as a new attending, I am curious, just from your perspective, not to... Not that you're not hosting the podcast here, but have you found it challenging or are we... Uh... No, I love it. <laughs> I love it. Because I, I think for me, as super side note, super diverticulum note, I guess. It's like, because I, I did GI fellowship and then the next year of IBD training. And during that year, I was like a fellow attending. I was both like a fellow, but also an attending because mm -hmm. I'm board certified. So I got to, I would say like a ramp up. So I, when I'm a real, real attending by myself at Penn, I like, I loved it. I was like, boom, I know what to do. It's like, I know when to take the scope and what not to. So I, I did, I think I had an easier ramp up than Justin in terms of like just at the midnight clock, you know, <laughs> I had a whole year of advanced training. Fair enough. Fair enough. So other than CLT and cognitive load theory, are there other educational concepts that you think the audience, both the trainees and the educators should think about or should know about or be at least be familiar with 
when we talk about educational training or endoscopic training? I think just one thing is to think about how we learn the skill of endoscopy. And you talked about driving, right? But when you start out driving and you think about the skill ahead of starting it, you have no clue even what the skill entails. And then you gradually kind of acquire knowledge of that skill. And then eventually it becomes very automatic. So as teachers, we're often in that kind of automatic phase of performing a skill, and that makes it even harder for us to articulate kind of where trainees are having difficulty and what the solutions are. Yeah, I think it's really important to try to keep those skills fresh and maintain that conscious competence. I think when we transition to unconscious competence is when it gets really difficult to explain. And I think likewise, I think keeping an eye on our learner and looking for evidence that they are able to hear what we're saying, that they are able to implement it. If we see that we ask them to do something and they don't do it or they don't respond or we ask a question and there's no response, that's a sign that they are cognitively overloaded. And so that may be a time, maybe a time to step in and take over the scope. I mean, this goes directly into practices we can talk about, like, setting expectations and all that. So I don't know if that's where we want to go right now or. That's literally. That's a good time. Yeah. Yeah. Best practices. What, what should we do as teachers? Yeah. So let's start with, yeah, I agree. Let's start with what are the best practices? So Catherine, you said setting expectations is number one. When do you set expectations with the trainee? If I'm working with a trainee kind of either for a day for a single procedure or an afternoon, I'll take a bit of time up front to speak with them, not only to establish goals, but if I haven't worked with that trainee in a while, to get some sense of what level they're at. So I usually just ask a simple question, like, what have you been having difficulty with or what have you been told you have to work on? And that gives me some sense as to kind of where they are and how insightful they are in regards to their own skill level. And then it's having a conversation and establishing goals, because if you just try to put goals on the trainee and they have no buy-in to them, they're not going to be very engaged in the session. So you actually have to kind of have some conversation. And often people, when they're first starting out, are very focused on getting to the cecum or getting to the terminal ileum and don't realize it's actually kind of the smaller skills like good tip control or torque steering that influence whether you can do that or not, right? So it's setting goals that are appropriate for their level and then getting them to buy into those. So saying something like, well, if you want to get to the cecum, you really need to understand the concept of torque steering. So why don't we work on that today? And then that allows you a focus for the session. That's a nice framing. Justin, what about you? When do you set expectations or how do you set them? I do a similar uh, to what Catherine described at the beginning of the session. I also like, and, and I totally agree with seeing where they're at and, and finding some things to work on during the session. I also find it helpful in my in my setting to look at the overall schedule and say, look, today, you know, a couple of patients canceled. So we only have four patients here for this half day. So you'll be able to take a lot of time or look, I had to overbook this urgent case on. So we're, we're going to be a little push for time today. So I may be more likely to take the scope sooner. But when that, when that occurs, it's not because, you know, you're failing. It's because I have to keep track of taking care of this patient and teaching you and keeping track of the whole roster of patients to make sure I finish on time because then the staff has to go to lunch and then we have an afternoon session this afternoon and we have to be on time for that. And so I think that, or I would say my my research has supported that when we set those sort of micro and meta expectations that fellows know better what to expect and it removes some of that 
extraneous cognitive load, worry about how it's going to go. Because I certainly remember standing there and th thinking, if I can just hold on to it longer, then I felt shame when the attendant took the scope away, which is, which in retrospect doesn't make any sense. There's no shame in that. It's an incredibly difficult task. But this comes from the fact that we're training either internal medicine or pediatrics-based trainees who haven't really been very procedurally focused for the past three or so years and are incredibly good at cognitive medicine, but all of a sudden they're like beginning again as a proceduralist. And so I think there's a lot of negative emotion when we take the scope away. It's very humbling. Yep. Yeah. And I think often people will ask me, like, should I say I'm going to let you do the first 15 minutes of the procedure. But I think an issue with that is that trainees then become focused on time and that at that 15 minutes, they're going to take over the scope. And you as a faculty then are hesitant to take over the scope or interrupt them sooner. So I would avoid kind of these time-based goals and focus rather on, on skills. And I think Justin highlighted the importance of talking about kind of your expectations and, and what's going to happen during the session up front so that they're clear on that. And I often tell my trainees too, or I usually tell my trainees that I'm going to ask you to stop during the procedure. And it doesn't necessarily mean that you've done something wrong. It may be to highlight something that is something good that you just did, but it's just a chance then that we can have a feedback conversation and discuss something before you move on. So don't be surprised if I'm asking you to stop. I love stop. It's so helpful. I don't know. I may, I may have learned that from you. I can't remember, but it's, it's so great. Just, it could only be for like 20 seconds sometimes, but then they, then, you know, the trainee can hear what you're saying as opposed to nodding while they keep to keep trying to navigate the scope. Yeah. I say stop to talk. That's what <laughs> you should be doing. <laughs> when, when do you, so do you always do an educational thing? Obviously patient safety is probably when you do it sometimes, but also are you doing it at a moment of, Stability, or are you doing it in the middle of an intense motion? When do you choose to use that tool? So I think it's either if a trainee's in difficulty and they've maybe tried the same thing two or three times and it's just obvious that they don't know kind of what the issue is. So stopping them, asking them kind of what do you think is going on, discussing that, what may be a potential solution, and then deciding on a solution and getting them to try that. So it could be in an area of difficulty. It could be after they, for example, reduced the loop really well and just stopping and saying, so what did, what did you encounter there? What did you do? Why do you think that worked? What could have you tried differently? And that kind of helps to foster their conscious confidence or their awareness of, of why they're doing what they're doing so that when they become faculty and are teaching endoscopy, it's much easier for them because they've actually thought about kind of why am I doing this when I'm doing it and, and how does that feel? So you're using interprocedural reflection for value there. I haven't. That's great. That's awesome. I've heard about it after a procedure, but that's that's new to me. So thank you for that. I like to ask them to describe, especially after a good loop production, like Catherine, you just mentioned. Ask them how how did that feel? And not not did it feel good, but how what were you feeling as you reduced that loop? The try because I think honestly, loop production is probably the single most important, one of the most important motor skills, psychomotor skills that trainees need to learn that we need to know. And it's also one of the hardest to understand or explain. What are also the best practices you guys take into the endoscopy suite with you? So we talked a little bit about before the procedure. Are there any other training skills that you bring in during the procedure or after the procedure that you think are kind of best practices? So I think 
during the procedure, it's important not to kind of talk over the trainee and provide kind of a running commentary of what's going on because that's completely overwhelming for the trainee. It's also not a time to be asking them to kind of talk about um, scales to describe certain findings that you're encountering, right? Like that stuff is better taught outside of the endoscopy suite. So during the procedure, you really want to keep your feedback focused, ideally on those goals that you set out ahead of the procedure and limit the amount of instruction that you're really providing during the procedure. It also, if you're not talking, you're actually paying more attention to what they're doing. So you can look at their hands, you can look at what's happening on the screen. I have recently, <laughs> I've only tried this a few times, and this is going to sound really old school, but in order to talk less with the brand new fellows, like, you know, it's towards 12 o'clock, it's towards 10 o'clock, I actually got an expandable metal, like, pointer off of Amazon because our our screens are close enough that I can actually like point with the pointer on the screen where to go. And uh, that's just, again, that's just removing more words so they don't have to process what I'm saying. Now, if that's the best technique, I don't know, but it's kind of fun. Kind of fun. <laughs> laser pointer. I've had someone use like those laser pointers yeah. and like, right there. That's what you yeah. should go for. <laughs> yeah. That's all yeah, during the procedure, I think, I guess, actually, I'm not sure that I have anything more to add. That was very nicely stated. Okay. <laughs> and I think, Justin, you alluded to kind of pointing to the screen or directing trainees to the screen. And there is actually research kind of from more very basic skills that if you provide your feedback or instruction in relation to the outcome of a movement, so what's happening on the screen versus how you produce that movement, so how they're moving their hands, it's actually more effective to be providing instruction in regards to the screen and, and the outcome of the movement. So saying tip up as opposed to big wheel down. Right. And if you start talking about their hands, the first thing they're gonna do is look down at their hands, right? Yeah. Which has implications for patient safety. Yeah. So really you wanna to try to provide your instruction in relation to the screen. And I think also to think about um, the words that you're using, a lot of people will say things like go a little bit over there, or, just a little bit that way. But who, who knows what that really means, right? Mm, so we, yeah. we want to think about kind of how we're providing instruction and being very specific in the words that we use. So like a common vocabulary. A common vocabulary, yeah. So things like tip, tip up, tip down, tip right, tip left, advance, withdraw. Yeah, and then using a clock face so that you can say, like, tip up to 12 o'clock or tip up to 2 o'clock. The one time I've started talking that I do talk more is I think when you're in a stable position, like if, you're, if you have a polypectomy, then I think there's opportunities. That, that's when I think the in-the-moment teaching can be really helpful, trying to get a polyp in position. Or, again, I think we alluded to at the beginning of this, We, I think we, or I'll speak for myself, I didn't learn a lot of how or why i just learned what and so talking about how to get a polyp in the right position how to you know get the tip of the snare catheter at the base of the polyp to secure it how to cinch it up those are times when they're doing such micro movements that i will talk more to help them to help them accomplish it because it's so rewarding, especially for an early fill, to be able to get the polyp on their own without help. And so I really try to, I try to talk them through that. I try to tell them what to do so they can, early on, so they can focus on just, they don't have to know what to do. They just know, have to try to do what I'm saying. But I think that's much more concrete 
I'm like trying to navigate through the sigmoid, for example, in terms of how to describe it. And if you know you have, for example, a patient who's likely to have a polypectomy, you can also take kind of a few minutes ahead of the procedure to ask them to walk you through how they would do that and, and talk about it kind of upfront so that you can then reinforce those skills when you are in the procedure. So we've talked a little bit about some of the best practices and you've highlighted the next question a little bit, but are there big mistakes or common mistakes that we as educators do that just is not going to get us the desirable outcome that we may be looking for? I think Catherine already said it, talking too much. Talking too much, it's just overwhelming, especially the, okay, yep, that's right. Oh, nice. Okay, great. Like just, I, we have to try to, we, it's, it's helpful to give positive feedback sometimes, like that was nice. But when you're a constant, when the teacher is constantly talking, the trainee is going to zone it out because they're so focused on what they're doing. So I think that's a big one. Yeah, I think also asking the trainee, can you kind of talk me through what you're doing as they're doing it throughout the procedure? Because that also puts a lot of cognitive overload on the trainee because they can't possibly kind of pay attention to what they're doing adequately and also provide a running commentary of what they're doing. And I think also failing to explicitly sit down with the trainee, and it doesn't have to be a long time, just kind of two to three minutes after the procedure, after a session, and highlighting kind of the key takeaways and and what the key feedback for that uh, procedure. So having almost like kind of a small debrief session after the procedure to talk through the goals, what they learned, and what the key takeaways are. I think letting someone struggle for too long is also very unproductive. I mean, they essentially get into unproductive practice, which is not good for the patient, obviously. But if you keep trying the same thing again and again, that's ineffective, then you start to learn to do that. And so I think trying to identify when someone is struggling and intervening for the shortest amount of time possible, depending on the whole situation. And then I do, I had to find a place to fit this in here and now I'm going to do it. It's super important to use... I have an agenda. It's super important. We did cognitive load theory. What's the other agenda? Now he's gone. I know he's gone. He got so excited. He pressed the mute button. I was trying to beat myself for a moment to deal with my pharyngeal reflux. So I'm back. It's super important to use that takeover time productively. I think the first part is removing the shame by the sort of how you set up the day and saying, wow, like this is really difficult. I remember struggling with this when I was in training because I still do. And that's a time where you can teach. You can sometimes you're narrating what you're doing with your hands. Sometimes you're talking about what you're thinking. Sometimes even when I I'll finally like reduce a loop effectively, I'll actually put the loop back in as long as it's safe and have the fellow like, I want you to do exactly what I do. You know, I'll tell them what to do. And so you like feel that's an opportunity to to know exactly what they're feeling. Because if you put the same loop back in, then they can take it out. So our research has shown that takeover time can be a very productive time for teaching because you've basically removed the cognitive load of doing the procedure and the fellow can actually just watch and listen and try to engage with you. So 
thank you for giving me that platform to say that. And I think takeover too, often faculty take over and that's it, right? But I think you have to think of takeover as giving, you can give the scope back. And I think that will then make it less fearful for trainees. Cause I think they think once the scope is, you've taken over the scope, like that's it, they're not going to have any other part in the procedure. But if you get in a habit of kind of helping them through difficult areas and then giving it back to them, then they maybe are not as anxious about having the scope taken over from them. Why, as educators, are we, I'll go ahead and put this out there. Why are we so bad at teaching each other these best practices? Like why, Like it doesn't feel like we have a robust train the trainer model. It doesn't feel like we have a robust way to spread this information out to everyone that's teaching endoscopy. Maybe institutions have it. Obviously, some of the societies have some curricula for it. Or am I wrong? Or are we missing opportunities to get better? Kind of what's out there and what should we be doing better as a community in this realm? So I think the United Kingdom has really taken a lead in this area. They realize kind of several decades ago now that their adenoma detection rate was abysmal. And they instituted both classes to teach colonoscopy skills and to train endoscopy teachers. And now if you're teaching in an academic center there, it's expected that you take these these classes. And in Canada, we have a program as well through our Canadian Association of Gastroenterology, where we actually run these skills courses as well as train the trainer courses. And we teach these principles and we provide people in real time feedback as they're teaching residents in the clinical setting. And we've tried to do some of that work in the States. I think logistically it's it's a challenge because you have to have centers that are dedicated to doing this and that people can come to and, and have kind of a prolonged list and enable that feedback. So a lot of the initiatives in the United States have been more simulation-based. Practically speaking, how long should like a colonoscopy be booked if you're with a trainee? You know, is it the same, like, let's say half an hour as an attending or 60 minutes or practically speaking, booking patients, getting cases in, but also with a learner? Is there an optimal time? We book them the same with the understanding that it's going to take a little longer and our faculty are charged with making it work because in a safety net system, we need to make sure, well, anybody needs to make sure we're getting our patients in in a timely fashion. And I think that's part of the discussion at the beginning of the day. That being said, somehow it tends to work out for us. I mean, we book, we, we tend to book about six, six patients and no more than seven procedures for a half day. So it, somehow it all, almost always works out. <laughs> But it does take longer. As medical director, I track our performance data, and certainly faculty who scope more with fellows have longer procedure times than faculty who rarely scope with fellows, to be sure. And half day is how many hours for you guys? I don't think it's super longer, though. I, you know, it shouldn't be taking, you know, 45 minutes for a colonoscopy for the most part, in my, in my opinion. Yeah, and I think that speaks to kind of the goal setting and setting appropriate goals for the level of training so that you can focus your feedback and how the trainee participates in the procedure appropriately. So that if they're kind of just starting out, they're not expecting that they're doing all of every procedure, right? That they're focused on, on learning specific aspects of colonoscopy or upper endoscopy. I will say CS to your question. We, our fellows clinic that faculty will staff is booked with a wider buffer than it is our faculty practice that fellows will join. 
So if a fellow's scoping with me, we may be busting out a certain clip, but in a fellow's clinic, it has a little bit more of a buffer to ensure there is that little bit more time for teaching, even in a difficult case. I think that comes partly into institutional buy-in, right? And a, and a culture of education and whether an institution is, is willing to put some money, frankly, behind education and, and provide a bit of extra time or a bit of extra payment to faculty who are teaching and maybe taking longer to do procedures than faculty who aren't. So we've talked a lot about what faculty should be doing as educators. Let's flip it for a second, because, right, fellows need to be buying into their own education. So what can a trainee or a fellow do to maximize their learning during endoscopy with, with faculty? I think the biggest thing is to have a mastery mindset and to worry less about performance. The performance will come, and if you are focused on learning how and why with humility and not being so concerned with being the first one in your class to get to seek them or, you know, holding the scope the longest, <laughs> it's going to be so much better. There's no point in comparing among each other. I tell the fellows, we have a big program. We have seven fellows a year and the vast majority will all sort of track together. Every, I say, I tell them every, every few years, there's someone who's really amazing and every few years there's someone who's really struggles, but most people just kind of like, it's like a, it's like a Peloton, you know, in the cycle, in a cycling, a cycling race, just sort of all traveling <laughs> together. And so it's, I really strongly advise fellows just be present, try to recognize when you're having, you know, negative emotions about, about failing in quotes or having your attending take over and just use that time to learn why and how, and everybody I mean, everybody turns out to be good endoscopists, at least in my experience. Justin, can you... Under your watch only. Yeah. Justin, can you define mastery learning just for the audience? Like what that actually means before we turn to Catherine to see what she has? It's an orientation to learning that's focused on the learning and not on performance. So it's okay if I don't do as well today in terms of what I actually accomplish physically. So it's okay if I don't get to seek them. If I can learn some new skills about navigating the signaling today. So the focus is on the actual learning process and not the learning outcomes and not the performance. Okay. Great. Thanks. Yeah, no, I completely agree with that, Justin. I think also if, if a faculty doesn't bring up kind of goal setting and talking about the what's going to happen throughout the time that the trainee has with them, just saying to them, like, do you mind if we take a few minutes to talk about kind of how today will run or what I want to focus on. So taking that initiative to start that learning conversation. And then afterwards, after kind of you've done procedures with the trainee, just saying like, do you mind if we sit down for a few minutes so you can provide me with some feedback? Just to help the faculty remind them of that feedback is important that the, and that the trainee is receptive to it. Maybe also going to the next step of this is you guys both mentioned goal setting as how important it is. And you guys do it at the beginning of a session. What are some examples of good goals to set for endoscopy and versus bad goals? You know, like I think Catherine, you mentioned like, okay, learning how to feel what or torquing is, et cetera. So just very like lightly around what are some examples of goals for endoscopy that we as like attending should keep in mind 
that we should communicate or hear from trainees. I think a bad goal is get, I, I'm going to get to the Seacom as fast as possible. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's the classic <laughs> bad goal. Okay. Justin, you clearly are all about the Seacom. This is classic for an IBDologist. No, here. IBD is you got to get the TI. <laughs> I, yeah, I was going to say, I really prefer the TI. The TI is beautiful. Like those, those frond like villi waving. That's where the structures are and ulcers are. Man. <laughs> they're just, <laughs> they're just beautiful. I, I could, sn- I could, I could nestle down in the TI and take a nap. <laughs> Cozy TI. <laughs> That's okay, uh, that is the future of the magic school bus. Yeah. So I'd say in terms of goals, uh, bad goals, I, I think it's focusing on the end, but I think in terms of goal setting one, acronym that I like to use is around SMART. So making sure the goals are very um, specific, that they're measurable, and that you can actually tell if a trainee's achieved it by the time, kind of the end of the session with you, that it's achievable. So it's within their skill set. So not if you have a very junior trainee that you're not focusing on like the skill of polypectomy or or loop reduction, you're focusing more on kind of tip control or very early skills, that it's relevant to the trainee. And that comes back to the idea of having this conversation with the trainee and making sure that they buy into what you're going to focus on. And also that it's time limited so that you can actually achieve it within the time that you have with the trainee. And it's not, not some kind of huge lofty goal that will take many sessions. So we've talked a lot about kind of some granular recommendations as to what to do on case-by-case basis. I'm wondering if we can step back for a second and think about what do the two of you want to see as the future of endoscopy training? Like, where do you think we're going to have changes or growth or kind of our new technologies that are really going to enhance us here? Is there, are there big differences coming down the pipeline or are we really going to always be working with an apprenticeship model with all these other kind of techniques that we've talked about? So I think the first thing is trying to get people kind of across centers to buy into a structured framework for teaching endoscopy and actually using that, right? Because if you set goals and then have a, a feedback debrief at the end of the session, the trainee automatically then has kind of their takeaways and what they need to work on with the next faculty. And it's kind of a cycle from one session to the next. I think in there are magnetic imagers, which do help in terms of viewing the colon and how it's configured. I know within our programs in Canada, we are using those and they can be very helpful. They do require faculty to be knowledgeable of kind of various configurations and what are the appropriate techniques to reduce a loop if you see a certain type of loop, but they can be very, very useful. Those would be kind of my big things. I'm not aware of other kind of technology on the advent. I think I think one thing that's obviously coming into endoscopy practice is AI, right? And there are AI platforms that are already being used in real time and thinking about how do those actually affect trainees as they're learning endoscopy and when should we be implementing those within a training program and how do we teach trainees so that they're not reliant on those platforms. And I don't think a lot of work has been done in that area yet. And it's something certainly that will be very relevant going forward. Yeah, that's a super important question for AI is making sure that it doesn't actually become like something they're dependent on and that it's not a source of extraneous cognitive load. I mean, if it's another thing one has to consider during the procedure, it actually could be maladaptive for training. 
do you guys think like what do you guys think about simulators because i know some facilities have it and some don't is it helpful unhelpful you know or is it like playing a video game and it's like not helpful in real life what's the role of simulation in endoscopy learning and training I personally think that they can be very useful early in training as one kind of aspect. At our center, all of our trainees spend about eight hours on the simulator before they even start on real patients. And it basically, we focus on teaching them kind of how do I interpret that image on the screen when I make particular movements with my hands and getting kind of the basic scope handling skills. I think they can also be useful if you're trying to teach very specific skills like bleeding control or polypectomy, but it's really trying to match the simulator that you're using to the skill that you're teaching as opposed to just kind of treating all simulators the same. But I think they're certainly useful in in very kind of specific areas. Well said. (laughs) Nothing nothing to add. Um, Well, actually, never mind. So I will say... The, I think the early value is is really important. When I was, the story I like to relate, when I was a first-year fellow, I was handed a scope. It's like literally my, my second day, July 2nd, and they're like, here's a colonoscope. Here's a patient. Insert the scope in the patient. Go up. Go up. Why aren't you going up? Okay, give me the scope. That is what I remember. I don't remember. Now it's it's been a while. I don't remember being taught much about the scope before I inserted one into a patient. And for the past several years here at, at my program, we have had a, a fellows endoscopy boot camp where they spend now basically the first week doing repetitive, so basically deliberate practice with observation. So it's deliberate practice for mastery learning. So trying, getting, doing repeated, trying the same skill again and again with feedback until they get it right. And We didn't actually study it, which is too bad, but anecdotally, the first few months, the fellows are so much more successful than they used to be. And I think it's, and they they come in knowing, even if they can't navigate the scope to the cecum, yet they know how it works and how to manipulate it. And it's just, it's, it's been so valuable, both for the fellows, for us and for patients. (laughs) Yeah. And I think like we, I think you have to remember too, that you can't just hand a trainee, a simulator and say like, go to it. Um, we've done research and you actually do need a person who's observing them and providing feedback, even for the simulators that kind of give the, the trainees metrics or say, ouch, when they're getting into issues, you really do need uh, somebody there providing them with feedback. Yeah, they'll practice bad skills otherwise. Yeah. They'll just do the same, like if they're bad, they'll just do the same thing over and over again. And it's kind of fostering bad habits. I think another potential area for simulators too, which I don't think we're using them much for now, but it has potential opportunities around team training, right? And training your endoscopy team in working together and communication. Mm, okay. I was going to say, Justin, I'm glad you didn't study it because I don't want to be randomized to a group with no teaching. <laughs> I only want, want to be randomized to the uh, intervention group. So maybe not yeah. even pre-post. Like, I don't know how. Yeah, we did randomize people to like just simulator teaching versus expert feedback. And it did show that those with feedback did do much better. Yeah. I think the question is now where simulator research should go. I mean, clearly it's evident that simulation is effective in teaching skills, but I don't know. I don't know what the next what the next horizon is. Maybe it's maybe it's team training. I like that idea. So as we are kind of winding down our conversation together, guys, 
you know, you guys are both very prolific researchers. You're both doctor doctors, which I learned today with the, with the double degrees. What advice do you give? Uh, maybe, maybe a twofold. What are, what's the best advice you can give someone learning how to be a new teacher, a new educator, like that first year faculty? And what's the best advice you give fellows about how to approach endoscopy training? For the teacher, I think it's giving them, it's discussing, the, the advice is to use the techniques that we've been discussing about setting expectations and knowing when to take the scope away. And basically it's all these, all these teaching tips to try and use them. And they don't necessarily have to use them all at once, but like try adding one every couple few weeks. So this week I'm going to focus on not talking too much while the fellow is scoping. But this week I'm going to focus on setting expectations and gradually building up that toolkit while you're also building up your own skill set. I mean, I learned as much during the first two, three years of faculty as I did during fellowship. I mean, it's a higher, it's a more, it's like more refining knowledge, but I learned so, so much and became so much of a better endoscopist. And I think even still after 11 years, I think my endoscopy is still improving more gradually. So I think that would be my advice for new educators. And just to be upfront with a fellow and say, I am a new faculty member. I'm still learning too. So there may be times when I need to do more of the procedure because I'm still building up my skill set and just being forthright. Now, sometimes I think you need to, for the individual faculty member, they may need to use that kind of approach with caution because sometimes they there can be challenges for a brand new faculty member in terms of their self-image or feeling like they're getting respect as an attending. But it's really, no, I'm rambling. I will simply say being, uh, <laughs> <laughs> there's so many thoughts being in my very head. very articulate with your direction. There's so many it. thoughts in my head. Using these te- teaching tips, being aware and of what's happening, reflect and spend time on their own reflecting and talking to their, their colleagues about how to teach and, and also having a mastery mindset that they're not going to be the world's greatest endoscopy teacher on July the 2nd of their first year of faculty. Yeah, no, I would agree with, with that Justin's highlighted. I think also for even people who aren't necessarily interested in education, we all by fact of our jobs, if we're in an academic center, are teaching, right? We're teaching in clinic, we're teaching endoscopy. So taking time to register for a course or to do some reading around best practices in education, because it will help you no matter what kind of career path you have. And I think also early in training, it's important to build up your kind of conscious competence. And so I say, if you are on your own for a procedure and you're in an area of difficulty, just slowing down a bit and thinking through kind of why am I doing what I'm doing and how would I recognize that if a trainee was struggling with the same issue. So taking those times when you are scoping on your own to really kind of build up your skills and foster your awareness of the procedure. And I like that. I think a lot of listeners maybe after listening to this podcast now think about a lot more reflective how they teach, how they should teach, or maybe, for example, me, I didn't know like 
big wheel down, telling them was not a good thing. And instead, like you said, Catherine, look at what they should be doing on the screen, not their hands. So that's my takeaway. So for others who want to go further in terms of getting education or training, one way is to their formal courses or resources are excellent for the next steps for them. Yeah, so there's certainly like a number of articles, which I'm happy to provide links to through your website on this topic and how to structure an effective endoscopy training session. There are courses offered through various organizations. You're welcome to come up to Canada and (laughs) take some of our courses, or there are simulation-based courses offered in the States as well. And how do we reach you guys, both Justin and Catherine? I guess whatever your preferred method of contact is, Twitter, email, or other. LinkedIn. So you're welcome to reach out to me by email. My Twitter handle is at Catherine with an A, M Walsh. I'm on Twitter, but I don't know how to use Twitter. And I keep saying that I need somebody to give me a tutorial because <laughs> I'm horrendous. I haven't actually ever tweeted, but I'm on there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for me, my email is uh, readily available online justin.sewell at ucsf.edu or my twitter handle is at gi med ed yeah i know it's pretty good right (laughs) oh gee that is good I, <laughs> you were obviously an early adopter. I wasn't though I, I, was at, twitter handle. I was at ddw like i think it was probably in 2018 and i was sitting in like one of the big like seating areas and i was like all right I got to get a Twitter handle and <laughs> GI MedEd was available. <laughs> so I would not say I'm prolific, but I do. I found it to be a, a useful tool at times. Which the- I think you more than dabble. <laughs> like a dabble plus. A dabble plus, yeah. Maybe you can give me a tutorial. Yeah, sure. A tweet. <laughs> a tweetorial. <laughs> a tweetorial. <laughs> Guys, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Take care. Thank you for listening to the AGA podcast. To reach us, please email us at agapodcast at gastro.org or follow us on Twitter at MJWitsonMD, at NinaNandyMD, and at CSCMD. Podcast production done by Resonant Recordings. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcast. Thanks for listening and have a good one.